come and serve for you are weary and the night is cold out there though our lives are very Although this has no connection whatsoever with the real substance of what this video is about, it will not be superfluous for me to relate to you a quick little story. About a year and a half ago, I had the privilege of meeting a man by the name of Mark Westmacket, and I met him because I read a book he wrote about Buddhism and relationships, and I had the privilege and the honor of interviewing him on this channel. And that's it. I read his book, and I spoke with him, but that one interaction had a big impact on my life and on my thinking, because Mark was such a sweet, special guy. He was very generous with his time, and he was very generous with me, who asked all sorts of, you know, strange questions to him and I was just very impressed by him and in reading his book he talks in detail about his childhood and his experiences growing up and they were horribly traumatic. I, I like to think that I've read and heard many stories of, of difficult challenging traumatic childhoods and his was was just so so sad and difficult and to hear his journey of recovery and the way he was able to heal from those experiences it really really amazed me. It really amazed me. And so even though I haven't spoken with Mark since that one very brief little interaction, the memory of that encounter, the memory of that person, the memory of what he went through has often re recurred and reappeared and intruded on my mind and on my thinking. When I think about my own life, my own traumas, other people's experiences, the, the image, the example of Mark Westmacket, what he was able to uh, heal from has just sort of reoriented what I think is possible within the human condition, what is possible within the bounds of healing. And so I tell all the story uh, as an example of the way in which meeting someone, learning about someone, uh, certain people in our life that we encounter can have a real impact on what we imagine is possible. They could, be, they could serve as models, as inspirations for us in very sticky, persistent kinds of ways. In my life, another character, another personage who has had the same effect on me as Mark Westmacket, another person who has stood in my mind, has come up in my mind again and again as an image, as an, a, a pinnacle of a certain kind of morality, of ethics, of, of justness, of righteousness, is the character of Muriel from the first book, from the beginning of Les Miserables. The, the bishop described by Victor Hugo, one of Victor Hugo's two famous clergy members, the other of course being Dom Claude Frollo from The Hunchback of Notre Dame. The Bishop Muriel is the epitome of righteousness. And anyone who's interested in questions of morality and righteousness and clergy from any religion and is interested in what it means to be uh, an impressive and an effective clergy member, I think these chapters about the Bishop Muriel are absolutely indispensable required reading. And I feel blessed and lucky to have read these chapters at a relatively young age, just after high school. And I feel blessed to have had these chapters stay with me and resonate with me 
and, and to be able to carry these chapters with me over the course of my life. And so Victor Hugo introduces us to the character of Muriel. Uh, it's the third sentence of the book with the following, quote, Although it has no direct bearing on the tale we have to tell, we must nevertheless give some account of the rumors, etc., etc., regarding Muriel. And so, again, it's this classic Victor Hugo digression, right? Victor Hugo's Les Miserables is filled with digressions. It's filled with these alleyways and, you know, tunnels of uh, inquiry and information. You know, famously, um, we get uh, the history of the Battle of Waterloo, a detailed description of the, the that story. We get a detailed description of the sewers of Paris, and which is characteristic of the way the themes overflow in this book, and they overflow the narrative, and they spill out into all these kind of uh, side channels. So in this early section of the book, we learn all about the Bishop Muriel and his some of his formative experiences, how he lives, uh, some of the things he's well known for, the rumors about him. But there's one formative experience from the Bishop's life that is particularly uh, interesting and, and important uh, from my perspective. And that's the story um, when the Bishop Muriel gives the last rites to a man who's going to be killed by the guillotine. And so it describes, uh, the Bishop is, is given this task and, and he has to administer the last rites and he tells this dying man to be courageous. He tells him that the, the, the man that is killed by, by men, God will resurrect um, and, and, and gives him strength in this moment. And um, the Victor Hugo describes the effect uh, that this experience had on the bishop. So, quote, As for the bishop himself, the spectacle of the guillotine caused him a shock from which he was slow to recover. A scaffold, when it is erected and prepared, has indeed a profoundly disturbing effect. We may remain more or less open-minded on the subject of the death penalty, indisposed to commit ourselves, so long as we have not seen a guillotine with our own eyes. But to do so is to be so shaken that we are obliged to take our stand for or against. End quote. And he goes on to ex expand on that theme. Um, it's powerful words to read. Um, living in America in the year 2023, where America is the only country, pretty much the only developed country in the world, that still has the death penalty. And this pattern that's so clearly, beautifully described here by Victor Hugo, very much applies to modern society today. It's very easy to have, you know, sort of wishy-washy opinions, you know, about politics and death penalty, but until you go look at it with your own eyes, your, your opinions are not yet clarified, you know? Um, it's very easy to just sort of, you know, not worry, not think about certain things. But when you see them with your own eyes, when you hear the testimony, when you see what it means in practice for the state to take a man's life in the name of penality, you know, that clarifies perspectives in a very profound way. The same can be said for a lot of things. But one thing that comes to mind for me is mass incarceration. The fact that America incarcerates a larger percentage of its own population than any other country in the world, developed or undeveloped. So if you think about all the oppressive, authoritarian, dis unpleasant regimes you can think of, like North Korea, China, Russia, and on and on, America incarcerates a larger percentage of its population than any of those. It's outrageous. It's outrageous. And again, it's very easy, you know, to... Um, not think about these things, but Victor Hugo is suggesting, is calling upon us to look, look with your own eyes, put the philosophizing aside, you know, 
put the arguments, this, that aside. Look at what the cost is. What does incarceration do to a person? What is the experience, not just to the incarcerated, but to the communities, to the fact that every incarcerated person has a family and has children and the lives that are ruined by an overly oppressive draconian system of punishment, a, a society that's so afraid of the cost of criminality, but ignores the costs of punishment. And even today, even in our hyper, hyper um, incarcerated America, the newspapers are filled with anxiety about crime and filled with anxiety about the danger of criminality and the cost of criminality, which of course is a real cost, but uh, seems to be totally blind to the other cost, the other side of that coin, the cost of just warehousing people and, and what we do to ourselves as a society because of those policies. And I think all of Les Miserables is this invitation to look. Look at the underclass of society. Victor Hugo is doing it with the society that he knew well in the 1830s France. And the invitation, I think, is even today in the year 2023 to look clear-eyed at what it means to be at the lowest rung of society. What does it mean to be extremely poor in society, to be homeless in society? And, and, and by having that experience, by looking clearly, that unflinching gaze, um, we can't not be affected. We can't not be clarified. Continuing a bit in this paragraph here, quote, the guillotine is the ultimate expression of law. Its name is vengeance. It is not neutral, nor does it allow us to remain neutral. He who sees it shudders in the most confounding dismay. All social questions achieve their finality around that blade. The scaffold is an image. It is not merely a framework, a machine, a lifeless mechanism of wood, iron, and rope. It is as though it were a being having its own dark purpose, as though the framework saw, the machine listened, the mechanism understood, as though that arrangement of wood and iron and rope expressed a will. In the hideous picture which its presence evokes, it seems to be most terribly a part of what it does. It is the executioner's accomplice. It consumes, devouring flesh and drinking blood. It is a kind of monster created by the judge and the craftsman, a specter seeming to live an awful life born of the death it deals. End quote. The key plot element in this early section of the book is when the bishop, Muriel, hosts the ex-criminal Jean Valjean. So we're in this French town, and Jean Valjean is an ex-convict. He's released from prison, and he, of course, is unwelcome in the taverns where he wants to eat, in the inns where he wants to sleep, because they see his paper, they know that he's here in this town, and, and they look down upon him as today. Many ex-convicts have a very hard time finding employment, for example, and uh, it leads him to despair. And he's really uh, desperate. He's been walking for days. He has no food. He has nowhere to sleep. He just wants anything. And someone suggests, you know, why don't you go uh, check out that house over there? There's a good bishop. Uh, there's, there's a, you know, go, that, that, that place, you know, will host you. Um, sending him, directing him to the bishop, Mariel's house. And we get such a, an amazing, gripping description of the scene from the inside of the house. We learn about uh, previously the, the bishop and, and the women that he lives with, uh, two, two older women, um, and they live together in this house, and, and the bishop refuses to lock his doors. And, and the women are, are very concerned, of course, understandably, about their safety. And so, uh, and, and, and there's now an awareness in the town that this criminal, this ex-convict, is on the loose in the town. Um, and people are worried. And so um, they, they bring it to the attention of the bishop. And they say, you know, there's, there's someone dangerous in the town. 
Um, and, and the woman says, you know, to the, to the Bishop Muriel, something dreadful will happen tonight. Everyone says so. When you think of the state of the police in a town buried in the mountains like this, with not a single lantern in the streets, so that it's black as pitch when you go out, well, what I say, and Mademoiselle agrees with me, what we both say is that this house is not safe, and that if Monseigneur permits, I should go round to Paulin Mousboy, the locksmith, and ask him to put back the bolts on the front door. We have them here. It wouldn't take him a minute. I say the door should be bolted, even if it's only for tonight. And anyway, it's a shocking thing for the door to be simply on the latch so that any stranger can walk in. To say nothing of Monseigneur's habit of always inviting people, and even at midnight, gracious heaven, they don't even need to ask. And when you think... At this moment, there was a heavy knock on the door. Come in, said the bishop. And that's the end of the chapter. And it's just such an amazing moment in this book. The bishop's courage, the bishop's unwillingness to be afraid in the face of a potential criminal. Um, and I think so much of morality is downstream of courage. So much evil in the world, so much cruelty in the world, is not a product of evil people, cruel people, but rather just scared people. People who are scared of immigrants, scared of the unknown, scared of the dark, scared of the stranger, scared of their neighbor, and scared of the criminal and the ex-criminal. And of course, there's uh, such a famous you know, scene here with the bishop and Jean Valjean, where the bishop welcomes him in. He says to him, I know your name. And that's a very charged thing to say, because Jean Valjean understands that everyone knows his name. Everyone knows that he's the ex-convict in town. And, and Jean Valjean's nervous, says, well, what do you mean you know my name? And he says, your name is Brother. And he, he houses him. And then, uh, of course, as everyone knows, uh, Jean Valjean wakes up in the middle of the night and he sees you know, the, silver, uh, the silverware that's very wealth, rich and, and valuable to him. And he, and he takes it and, and he considers uh, killing the priest. Um, but he, he doesn't kill the priest and he leaves. Um, and, and of course, uh, when, when he's dragged back by the townsfolk and the police to the priest saying, this is a criminal who you hosted and he stole uh, your silver, the priest, of course, says, um, it was a gift. And he says, you forgot these also. And he gives him the silver candlesticks. And afterwards, he tells Jean Valjean that he needs to reform his ways. And... The, the courage of the priest, the generosity of the priest is so, is so um, inspiring and it's a generosity and a courage which includes the courage to be wrong, you know, the courage to, to be generous and to be taken advantage of. It's the courage to say, you know, you don't know what someone's going to do. He doesn't know what's going to happen in Jean Valjean's life. And we learn that Jean Valjean's redemption arc depended, of course, on the generosity of the priest, but not that wasn't sufficient, you know? What also happened is that in the next town, no one checked Jean Valjean's papers. They forgot to check his papers. And he was able to tear up his, his past in that way because no one knew, you know, he was able to hide it. Um, and he was then able to be successful in business. The sense that uh, his redemption arc includes a financial stability that he was able to achieve. And the priest, of course, has no way of knowing what's going to happen. But he's willing to take that risk. He's willing to be wrong. He's willing to be taken advantage of. This, this seeing the best in people. If there's one message in Les Miserables, if there's one political societal message which comes up again and again, which is very heavily emphasized, it's that penality, 
punishment, draconian punishment of society creates criminality. And it's true then, it was true in 19th century France, and it's true today, of course, in America, around the world, that overly incarcerated populations, overly strict um, draconian punishments and, and laws, laws that criminal, criminalize poverty, create criminality. When Victor Hugo describes Jean Valjean's mindset, the way in which um, he's been so ruined and degraded by his prison experience, he describes how the uh, experience of prison taught him to hate people and to hate the law and to hate all the symbols of the law. There's a very poignant episode towards the end of this book one where uh, Jean Valjean is in a courtroom and he's watching the prosecution against a man the man's name is Champ Mathieu, and he's being prosecuted um, as Jean Valjean. The court is saying, you are the convict Jean Valjean, and Champ Mathieu is not Jean Valjean, and he's very bewildered. And at one point, he gets up, and he says to the court, you are wicked. That's what you are. That's what I was trying to say, only I couldn't find the words. I'm one of those who don't eat every day. I was on my way on foot, and he goes on to tell his life story and, and how he ended up there, end quote. But the sense that, you know, the, the cruelty of the law, its disregard for the experience of the poor is a key message, a key theme in this book. And the antidote, the, the response that Victor Hugo wants us to imagine as an alternative, as a way of counteracting this, is the open-handed generosity, the loving embrace of the priest, telling the convict, you are my brother a willingness to show mercy, a willingness to forgive, a belief that people can change. It's that generosity, it's that love and compassion that's seeing the innate goodness in people which performs this miracle of transforming Jean Valjean from this hardened ex-criminal to someone who uh, does indeed dedicate their life in the direction of a good, um, generous impact on the world. Of course, there's so much in book one that I'm not able to go into in this video, but there's one other piece from this book that really stood out to me, that really um, affected me on this reread, and I think it's something we can identify as emanating from Victor Hugo's own biography, and that is this theme of meditation that comes up um, throughout the book in, in many places, but uh, twice in, in very powerful ways in this, in this book one. In one of the dramatic moments of the book, uh, Jean Valjean is running to the town of Arras. Uh, he has very, very little time, um, but he found out that the court case is happening where Champ Mathieu is going to be tried um, as Jean Valjean, the ex-convict, and uh, Jean Valjean wants to go and witness this court case. And it's an arduous journey, it's a long journey, he has very little time, and he has to figure out how to get there on time. And Victor Hugo describes this, this journey. Quote, What were his thoughts during this part of the journey? As in the morning he watched the passing of trees, thatched roofs, tilled fields, and changing vistas appearing at every bend in the road, an occupation soothing to the spirit that may almost take the place of thought. Nothing can be sadder or more profound than to see a thousand things for the first and last time, to journey is to be born and die each minute. 
Perhaps somewhere in the vague recesses of his mind, he perceived parallels between this series of dissolving views and our human life. All the elements of life are in constant flight from us, with darkness and clarity intermingled, the vision and the eclipse. We look and hasten, reaching out our hands to clutch. Every happening is a bend in the road, and suddenly we have grown old. End quote. And it's this theme of living and dying in every moment, in appreciating the majesty, in meditating in the majesty of unmediated experience that I think for Victor Hugo is at the core of righteousness. When describing the Bishop Muriel, Victor Hugo makes clear that meditation is a critical part of his daily routine and is a critical part of what makes him who he is, what makes him such a great and inspiring man. Quote, The day was not complete for him if he was prevented by bad weather from spending an hour or two in his garden after the two women had retired to bed. It seemed to be a necessary ritual that he should prepare himself for sleep by meditating under the solemnity of the night sky. Sometimes, if they were awake, they would hear him at a late hour pacing up and down the paths, peaceful in his solitude, adoring, matching the tranquility of the heavens with the tranquility of his own heartbeat, ravished in the shadows by the visible and invisible splendors of God. He opened his spirit to the thoughts coming from the unknown. At those moments, when he offered up his heart, in the hour when the night flowers offer up their scent, himself illumined in the bestarred night, and unfolding in ecstasy amid the universal radiance of creation. He could not perhaps have said what took place in his spirit, what went out from him, and what entered in. A mysterious transaction between the infinity of the soul and the infinity of the universe. And it goes on, but we'll stop there. In his biography of Victor Hugo, Graham Robb describes, he recounts a letter that Victor Hugo sent to another uh, poet, and he describes his writing process. At the time, Victor Hugo is living in exile outside of France, and he's living um, on, on the beach by the water. And he writes as follows in this letter, quote, I am writing this a little haphazardly, just as it comes to me. Try to imagine the state of my mind in this splendid isolation. I live as if perched on the very tip of a rock with the great foaming of the waves and all the great clouds of the sky beneath my window. I inhabit this immense dream of the ocean, and slowly I become a sleepwalker of the sea, faced with these prodigious sights and that enormous living thought in which I lose myself. There is soon nothing left of me but a sort of witness of God. End quote. And so that's it. Those are some thoughts on part one, or book one, of Les Miserables, this book is called Fantine. There's a lot that we didn't talk about. We didn't talk about Fantine, um, the beautiful line in the book where Victor Hugo says society buys itself a slave. That's his description of prostitution and the way poor people, poor women are, are forced into prostitution. Um, there's, yeah, so much to unpack in this book, but of course the nature of this book and the nature of this read-along is, you know, we can only touch upon what we touch upon. Um, and yeah, it was, it was wonderful, uh, to reread the section and, um, I, I appreciate you joining me and I'm excited to come back next week as we discuss, uh, part two, Cosette.
So thank you for watching. Two, three, four. Tell his reverence your story. Let us see if he's impressed. You were lodging here last night. You were the honest bishop's guest. And then out of Christian goodness, when he learned about your plight, you maintain he made a present of this silver. That is right. But my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot I gave this also. Would you leave the best behind? So, messieurs, you may release him. For this man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty. May God's blessing go with you. Okay. And remember this, my brother. Seeing this some higher plan, you must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. 